Hello, welcome to one more Business You Do podcast episode. Today, I'm honored to be here with Andrew Kakabazi, Professor Andrew Kakabazi from Handling Business School. Hello, Andrew. How are you? Fabio, thank you. I'm very well. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you. It's an honor to be here with you. Thanks again for your time. I know that you are a very busy man. And our audience, we're going to learn a lot with you. So, you. can you introduce yourself for, for our Certainly. colleagues? Certainly. My name is Andrew Kakabatsi. I'm Professor of Governance and Leadership at the Henley Business School. My background is that I started in environment. From that, I went into medicine. I was in psychiatry. I was a psychiatric social worker. I was a child guidance officer. Uh, I worked with communities and hospitals in mental health. From that, I went into public administration, uh, academic for a short while, then looking at the organization of public administration in Scotland and in various places. From that, I became a consultant. From that, I went into uh, security services and even military intelligence. And from that, I became a full-time academic. Now, that experience was invaluable because it brought me in touch with both business, profit, money, and the need for public good, social welfare. And in many ways, all my work has been looking at the combination of those two from the perspective of the corporation or from the perspective of government. That's me. Your experience... Sometimes I think that it's required two lives <laughs> to get your experience. <laughs> yeah, that's Thank incredible. You. And it shows that sometimes in the life you start in one thing and then you go to the other and then you go to the other and it's all valuable at the end. Yeah, somebody's called me disorganized. That's the other way to look at it. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, today we will talk about one interesting topic. It's a topic that is on the on the media now. It's everywhere. Every corporate governance body or regulator or or people professional involved with corporate governance is talking about, which is ESG, environmental, so social, and governance. Can you please provide for our audience a brief introduction to this topic? Certainly. ESG is the current topic. What it came from was CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility. And that is a 1980s, 1990s theme. And basically that arose from when government decided to uh, have some of its responsibilities transferred to the public sector. So CSR was in many ways an attempt by the private sector to uh, fulfill their social responsibilities, but without regulation. So in those early days, Philips, the big uh, European uh, manufacturer, plus the first dean of INSEAD were the instigators of the CSR movement. That has now taken on an environmental perspective. And so we have the three uh, words E, S and G, environment, social and governance. In fact, these are political terms. E, S, and G are completely different topics. And from the research that we've undertaken, you will find that many companies are having a problem integrating E, S, and G. And there's a very good reason for that. Their business does not cover E, S, and G. 
So there is a reflection of a political movement and still government will not provide sufficient regulation to ensure that we meet environmental and social standards. So we're left up to the discretion of the company. And that's where we are. ESG is not so much a statement. In today's world, it's more a question. What does it mean for me? And what are the reasons for ESG debates growing importance now in your, in your view? Well, first of all, we can see the environmental uh, harm that's taking place. We can see the whole green movement, the climate change movement. All those are deeply relevant. But also behind that is the inequality that's here and the social disparities that we're facing. I mean, if we take Britain, Britain has, I think it's only just one step ahead of America, it has the highest sex, sexual exploitation of children in the whole of the developed world. Britain has, in fact, in terms of malnutrition, it has something like 30% of all children are underfed. And that is a medical term, that's not just an opinion. So ESG in many ways is a movement that tries to capture the environmental concerns we've got, but also the social concerns we've got. The big question mark, as I said here, is how far can you expect a company to address all these social ills? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, for us that came from you know, developing countries such as Brazil or in Latin America in general, even in Central America, the view, the perspective that we look at to the Europe and America is that everything is perfect. <laughs> That's not the case. Which is not the case. Yeah. But at the same time, do you think the companies possess, they have, the capabilities to implement ESG strategies and practices within the business consistently? What are the necessary capabilities a company must have to address this? It's challenging, though, isn't it? What yeah, are the, the necessary capabilities a company needs to have? First, to answer your first part of your question, do companies have those capabilities? Yes. The second part of the question is, to what extent can those companies address all the ESG problems is they can't. So what has emerged from a very recent study of ESG is the point I made previously, is that for many companies, E, S, and G are completely different things. So if we take a, a sector distribution, E for oil, gas, and some of the dirtier industries is a massive concern. S for consulting companies, service companies, government departments, charities, um, banks, finance, is the bigger concern. E is not. And G is the major concern for all of them, but it may not have anything to do with ENS. So the first question for capability is, what relevance does ESG have for you and your company? So number one, ESG has to be placed within the strategic framework. And if ESG have a strategic role to play, and you can show that, then we can actually begin to implement ESG as a part of strategy, turn it into operations, and make something happen. However, the governance of all this is not so simple because ESG may have a strategic requirement, but the governance of all this is not strategy. The governance of all this gives risk and reputation. If you don't do ESG, what are the risk factors here? And if you don't particularly look after the E and the S, 
as part of reputation, how far will our share price be damaged, our reputation be damaged, our overall image in the marketplace or in the communities be damaged? So if we want to look at capabilities, we need to look at three things. Strategic involvement, risk analysis, and reputational analysis. Now we begin to bring about ESG to something more practical. I see. We'll, we'll explore more on this during our conversation. From an environmental perspective, can you provide an example of how a company and its leadership positively engage initiatives to deliver short, medium and long-term results? We recently looked at a number of oil companies and a number of, if you like, mineral companies. And it was interesting to see that the very first sign that they were engaging in this is that you had ESG offices. They may have been called slightly different things, but below the board, below the management team, there was a group of people who were fully examining the ESG implications of strategy, of risk and reputation. These are full-time officers. Now, in that sense, they said to us, well, it's common sense. If you are extracting something from the earth and the local community is going to be affected, you would be crazy not to have a risk analysis of all that, a reputational analysis of all that. And just an analysis of all that is not sufficient. You need experts in, for example, oil extraction. You need experts in the way we're taking out minerals from the earth. You need to understand the environmental damage that you do. You need to have expertise in how that environmental damage is handled. You need to have political expertise. How are we going to deal with local politicians, trade unions, uh, governments, in trying to um, establish a good business here with ESG safeguards when you know there are lobbying groups against you? So the first sign that ESG is working is you can see there is actually an investment in the infrastructure and particularly with environment. It's more difficult to do with S. And in fact, in our research, S is the one factor that is the weakest representation within the corporate hierarchy and in within the corporate debates. E and G are powerful. Basically, Fabio, what's emerged is E is more relevant to European companies and countries. S is a question mark for everybody. And G is more relevant to British and American companies. So where you have more that social inclination, we see that in the infrastructure. Where you have the concern with shareholder returns, shareholder reputation, you see that in the governance infrastructure. I see. And very interesting. And from a governance perspective, how can ESG contribute to creation of material competitive advantage of a company? Well, if it's environment, you can measure it. Because apart from the fact you can measure uh, damage done to the land, damage done to the communities, the rivers and so on, you can also measure, if you like, political influence, political impact, the response from various interest groups. It's the S bit that's problematic. And here, Everything depends so much on the chair of the board. I'll give you a very practical example. Um, I was working with a major company in uh, Britain, which is concerned with power, the generation of power for the, for the nation state. They were going to buy a power plant in Eastern Europe. 
it looked very good. The price was low. The techniques and skills in that power plant were great. And there was a potential market there. So from a strategic analysis, the CEO who was driving that said, let's purchase. The chair, when the chair looked at this, the chair was not so easily deceived. Some of the board members were. And the chair then took an S analysis. What does it take from a stakeholder point of view? And that was what S meant here. What does it take to do business? And the reality is you do business through government and you do business through a particular ministry. And that meant bribery, extensive bribery. So the chair asked the board, which of us has these government contacts in any of the Eastern European countries, including the one in which this power plant was based? And the answer was minimal. Which of us are willing to take the risk to actually start bribing? And by the way, start bribing well. And bribing well means you bribe continuously and you're not caught. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then the chairman asked the question, so from a risk perspective, what do we do? Do we buy a very good plant that we can't use? Or do we buy a very good plant that we use and bribe when we don't bribe well? Or do we not purchase? So it was interesting from the S perspective, this company decided not to go ahead with the acquisition. But if you notice here, S was not a separate subject. S was a concern in reputation and risk. So when you ask the question E, S and G, many people in the academic world have interpreted that as these are distinct topics. What I see, Fabio, is that E, S and G is a critical part of three conversations. It's not a conversation on its own. It's strategy, it's risk and reputation. Yeah, definitely. They are all together and they're two in it, isn't it? I have, I have two quotes now, Andrew. The first one is about uh, Rio Tinto. They has been braced for an investor revolt after handing 7.2 million pounds to its former CEO, who was excluded over the destruction of sacred Aboriginal caves. The CEO, of course, lost his job after 43,000-year-old rock shelters were blown out last year. And the second one is about the Netflix documentary I watched it two weeks ago. It's called Seaspiracy, which brought to the public eye some questionable practices of the commercial fisher industry. I carry out some desk research very briefly, and I find that the top 10 fishery companies in the world are strongly financially supported by institutional investors, banks, investment funds, and even automotive companies that are selling products and services worldwide. And then, based on these examples, I would like to ask, to ask, to ask you two questions. First of all, who is accountable and responsible for DSCG initiatives and actions in a company? And the second one is, what would be the practical actions for a board of directors to foresee and act to avoid such a kind of actions, in your opinion? The answer to both your questions in theory is that it is the board. The board is accountable. The board must look at all these issues, and it is particularly the chair that has to guide the board, especially on a reputation and risk analysis. What are the implications of going ahead, for example, with damaging these Aboriginal lands? 
for example, continuing with this particular Netflix uh, documentary, which I saw as well, and it is most interesting. Now, in the Rio Tinto case, it must be the board. Why did the board allow such a destruction of lands to take place? Did the board even know? Now, there, is, there may be a chance, I don't know here, that there may have been information not passed to the board. Now, this is a critical question. How does the board know that it is getting the right type of information and the right value of information? And that so much depends on the relationship between the chair and the CEO. Mm. And I have to raise a question here that once you've done that and you've paid 7.2 million to a CEO, what is the reality of the relationship between the chair and the CEO that in many ways minimize the board's involvement in this particular case? But it's not unusual, Fabio. You go to other circumstances We've been to Royal Bank of Scotland. Again, there was a fundamental question mark there between the chair and CEO. RBS did not go bankrupt, but it's taken a lot of um, government funds. Halifax Bank of Scotland, exactly the same question. Uh, Enron was exactly the same question. How could a chair and CEO, and it was interesting with Enron, that they had, as an American company, a separate chair and CEO, which is unusual for uh, US companies. How could they have allowed that movement of monies to make the, uh, the accounts look as if they were highly profitable. So here, I think we have one of the most interesting tensions of governance, which is chair-CEO relationship. And I certainly would like to see that explored more. But the Netflix documentary is a very interesting one. I'm actually involved here with a group that is working with the Institute of Directors at this moment, and we're looking at stakeholder governance. And part of that, we had to conduct a few interviews. And one of the most interesting findings was that in the city, there seems to be between three to four trillion pounds waiting for investment. And it's not happening. When I last looked at that, I thought it was one trillion was my conclusion. But this time we had a group of people looking at that and it's three to four trillion. My question is, what are those investors waiting for? And fundamentally, they're waiting for almost a pre-2008 uh, financial environment where you can make a quick investment three to five years and come out of it with, I don't know, seven, eight, nine percent return, which is impossible now. Yeah. So that tells me that a lot of ESG thinking is not being applied. The money is there to apply it. The change of habit is so great that we cannot have three to five year investments. We need to have 25 to 30 year investments. And instead of that taking place, what we're looking at is the best investment that can take place right now. So the idea of enlightened investors, I have seen a few. The Norwegian Sovereign Fund is one. To be honest with you, I have not seen any else. I can give you two stories. Um, when Putin was building up the military capacity of Russia, and now the military capacity of Russia is quite good, um, one of my former students worked for the bank, the, the bank that works for the Russian government. And that guy came to me and said, Putin wants to go green, which meant he's going to develop the cities. Who can I go as investors for green investment in Russia? So I had a few from Israel to all over the place. Six to seven weeks later, the guy comes back and says, Putin is now going to really build up the military capacity and is giving 20 to 
interest return. Who can I go to? Well, I gave him the same lot. Do you know that every one of those investors switched their money from green to military, made it look as if nothing had taken place, but actually the investor capacity was the immediate return. So it's no surprise to me that this Netflix documentary is taking place because we have another force from government and the company, and that's the investor community. And I have not seen this consciousness, whether it is corporate, social and responsibility, or it is environmental, social and governance in the investor community. It still is as it was before. Yeah. That leads me the, for the other question, which is, uh, it seems that the company's engagement with ESG is living by financial perspective only. You think that the case, and why? Absolutely, I have to agree with you. Unless you have very particular values in the company, and for example, in, in the UK, the John Lewis Partnership, where you have employee involvement in the ownership of the company, the American company Caterpillar, where they have made it absolutely clear that their values are based on quality, the quality of their goods and services, which goes back to the foundation in 1917. Uh, Anglo-American from the Oppenheimer tradition in South Africa. Unless you have companies like that, what you are really having is ESG more as a concern of risk, not as an active investment concern of strategy. So the fundamental question that really emerges is, let's not get caught. Let's look good. So we do have phraseologies like greenwash. It's a whitewash meaning. In other words, we're washing over the reality of what's happening here. And that concerns me. And when I look at the various people that I have worked with and as colleagues, they tell you they're wonderful. They're good people. They're deeply socially conscious. On a personal basis, they would do anything they can for their families, their communities, and so on. But they're in a difficult situation. What do they do with shareholder funds? How can they prove that they're going to provide an investment that is good for the community, but it is not necessarily what the shareholders want? And if you have a situation of so much of a volume of funds, even just in London, of three to four trillion pounds waiting for investment, you can imagine what the pressure is on the board, the chair and the CEO, to go in the direction of basically shareholder investment without necessarily ESG, CSR concerns whatsoever. Yeah, definitely. Very interesting points, Andrew. And I think this discussion is very important and bringing, bringing this to the, the wide, let's say, community of people or society to discuss and to reflect upon this everything that's happening it's important and then i have another question that what would be the benefits of a mainstream educational campaign for the public let's say the customers us that we buy the products for these companies to engage more with esg responsible companies i mean do you think that customers' pressures would be a more powerful influencer than investors and regulation for these companies? There were certain studies conducted in this area, particularly uh, products that came from India, clothing products, um, polluting the environment by putting dyes into shirts, into sweatshirts and so on. 
versus where you had a much more environmentally friendly approach. And there was some customer reaction, which was, yes, let us buy the more environmentally friendly products. But then a downturn came and all that went. Um, so on a mass basis, I don't believe the customer can do much because the customer is also a person at the receiving end of investment patterns. And they are at the receiving end of what those investment patterns mean for them in terms of their salaries, their remuneration. So when life is good, by all means, let's be socially responsible. That's not the concern. It's when life becomes demanding what happens. And those experiments didn't work that much. I go to Waitrose right now, which is part of the John Lewis partnership. Uh, I look for environmentally friendly products. That is my personal uh, requirement. So I buy products that are organic and so on. I go then to other supermarkets. What do I find? They're cheaper. Exactly the same product. What do you think I do? Well, I go to the other supermarkets. Now, I do know because I've looked at and worked with John Lewis Partnership, the effort that they put into their ESG. So, for example, organic foods with farmers. Do you know that they had, I think they've stopped it now, they had a 25-year contractual relationship with farmers who produced organic foods. In the contract, the first 12 years, John Lewis Partnership expected you to make a loss because you could not meet their standards. And they only expected you to start producing quality goods at a profit by the 13th year. Now, commendable. Isn't that fantastic? We've got such a socially responsible company. What's happening to John Lewis Partnership now? They're beginning to close their stores. They can't work anymore. Of course. <laughs> so we, we can only go so far with customers. We can only go so far with companies. We must face up to the fact that this is a political issue. It involves us all. You cannot pass your responsibilities on such a scale to companies. On a particular scale, yes, but not on such a massive scale. Yeah, you have, you have a point here. Andrew, again, thank you so much for your participation. I think this topic is very relevant now and for the next few years, you know, for my son and for all the the youngest that are growing now in these different worlds that we are living and with all these pressures. So I think they need to, to think about, to reflect and put more pressure uh, in the politicians, in everything. So I'm thinking more about it. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure. And I agree with you for the younger generation, if there is to be an educational experience, it is, if you like, their political and communal responsibilities. And I'm not trying to pass the buck from business to politics. I'm not. I'm actually saying we now have an enormity of issues to address. And when we have a sufficient political swing in one direction, we can deal with it. Yeah. Can you please conclude by indicating some book, article, a final message for leaders and board members regarding SEG and everything that we talked about? I will, I will ask you to look out for the report that will come from the Institute of Directors because they're debating right now what does stakeholder responsibility mean and how should we action it. And the reason I want people to look at that is that there is one point of view that could lead us to, if you like, diversity tyranny. 
is another diversity issue. You have to put it in, into practice. The tyranny is it's another checklist. And another checklist is a nightmare. As opposed to a very high quality debate. So I think what I'd like to leave everybody with is the question of how do you determine meaningful engagement? And the fact that we will have in the company different people responsible and accountable for ESG is absolutely right. The CEO for strategy, the chair and the board for reputation and risk. And the fact that we're going to have inconsistencies between companies is not the issue. The issue is this company has really thought about what meaningful engagement on ESG with critical stakeholders really is. That type of text, Fabio, is missing. What we're getting is a lot of texts which give you another prescription towards ESG. And that means that all you're going to, is going to happen is people will follow a checklist, they've ticked it off, they've done it, and nothing has changed. So it's looking for meaningful engagement and where meaningful engagement has been examined. That's the point. And I know my colleagues at the IOD are trying to do that. Yeah, Andrew, I think we are, it looks like we are in the, the beginning of all these discussions. It has a lot of to be done and considered by all the stakeholders and the shareholders and the government as well. Again, thank you very much for your participation. Uh, I strongly believe that our audience are delighted to hear from you, all these aspects, and we have a lot to consider and to reflect upon it and to debate. Thank you again. Uh, I hope our audience enjoy it and see you in the next episode of the New Business Edu podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Fabio. Thank you so much, Fabio. It's been a pleasure. Bye. Bye.